What's up, everyone? This is Wes Lyon from McGill and Lyon Dental Advisors. Welcome to the Drilling It Down podcast. More dentists than ever are searching for solid, independent, objective financial advice. On this show, I sit down with my guests to help you see clearly through the fall, providing education as it relates to practice management, tax planning, investing, practice transitions, really any financial topic you can name that's going to help you reach your goals. Welcome to another episode of Drilling It Down. This is your host, Wes Lyon, and with me today, I have Liam Fitzgerald. Liam, how are we doing? We're doing great, even better now. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. We appreciate your time here. So we got a few articles this month that we just want to dive into in a lot more detail. So for those of you who haven't read, we're not going to cover everything on the Drilling It Down. So make sure you check out the latest episode or the latest newsletter should be hitting your mailbox shortly. But all of the articles are available online. And I'm assuming you're on the website if you're watching us here. (laughs) Absolutely. And Looking at just the the cover article, I think it catches a lot of folks' attention when we look at, hey, the the magic word PPO, and it's like there might be some some lost profit along the way. I'd love to hear just more about it, how we come here. Yeah, I'm actually working on one right now for somebody where there's a lot in there, and you know I think it's important to understand the history. This really started, and with, you know Bill Rossi helped us with this case in this article, so it really started up in Bill Rossi's world. He's up in Minnesota, so. <laughs> He talks a lot different and faster than we do, but he's great at this PPO stuff. <laughs> and really, the insurance companies came in back in the day. And, you know, many of you listening, you you may be old enough to remember this, although I've just really read it in history books. But some of the younger doctors probably don't understand how we got in this mess with the PPOs. And originally, they came in and, you know, it was going to be a benefit, which meant everyone was going to have money to pay. And it was going to really increase the demand for dentistry. Well, it certainly increased the demand for dentistry, but then, you know, they all pulled a back door on everyone and said, okay, now that you're all in network and now that we got all the patients signed up, we're going to start cutting the fees. And they started cutting the reimbursement rates, you know, really starting back in the 90s, started to get heavy. And it really started up in the Midwest and the Northwest and the Northeast. And, you know, for better or for worse, when you know, they came down south in their fancy suits. There's a lot less insurance exposure down here. (laughs) So a lot more people say, I don't know what you're selling me, but I'm not really interested in buying. So it's kind of geographic as to how bad the write-offs are, but that's really how we got here was everybody signed up back in the day. And, you know, we oftentimes meet with clients and they haven't updated their fee schedule in, you know, 25 years. And I say, well, I haven't got an insurance reimbursement go up in 25 years. Mm. So I've kept my fees there because they ain't going to pay me anymore anyways. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. But there's a lot of truth in it that the fees have gone up. Inflation has gone up. And, you know, the fees they're paying for a crown have stayed the same. And it might have been profitable in 1993, but it ain't going to be profitable in 2023. Absolutely. <laughs> I was watching something the other day and someone was talking about, you know, something, oh, you used to pay a hundred dollars to get, you know, your engine rebuilt. It was (laughs) like, well, yeah, it was, it was profitable back then, but you can't buy much for a hundred dollars today. So, you know, that's really the history and how we got here and you kind of see why it doesn't work. But a lot of dentists, I think, have got into this mentality that the insurance is what drives the patients through the door. And, Oftentimes it does. I, I don't want to mislead that, but it, if it does, it's because that's how you set your practice up. So I always tell people, you know, 
tell me what your marketing expenses are. And, you know, oh, I don't spend any money on marketing. <laughs> and you go, well, what are your write-offs? And say, I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> say, well, you don't know how much you spend on marketing because if you write off 300000 to insurance companies, that's the 300000 that you paid them to send patients your way. Right. Makes sense. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Is that really what's stopping some of these doctors from actually going forward with, hey, we're going to make some big shifts? Or is there anything else that's stopping them from this? Well, yeah, that, that's kind of how we got here and how we get out of it is a little bit different. So I, I think we incorporated different practice management stuff about two or three years ago into the mm-hmm. presentations we do at the seminars. And I was a little hesitant. First, you know, Tom, I'm unveiling some new presentation material. And I started telling doctors about the patient experience and how much, how important that is and how the front desk treats them. And, you know, I, I was sitting there, I said, oh, I don't know, these people might be mad at me for telling them this <laughs> at the end of it. But I had a bunch of people come up to me and, you know, thank me and opened up their eyes and we've incorporated ever since and got great feedback. And that's really when it hit me that a lot of dentists out there, their patient experience is overlooked. So that's really the first step is, you know, are we a nine or a 10 patient experience? And I feel like we're always back to the same things here, but this patient experience is really what drives the dentistry and the patient experience, what drives the referrals. So if you can get that right, you can get the practice set up. But if your patient experience at the front desk is churn and burn and, you know, they feel like they're in a medical office, <laughs> right. then they're going to go with the insurance company, not you. The doctors that are successful at getting rid of them are the doctors that really have a, a high quality of care. They really have front desk people, too, that really help. And the tricky part about the front desk and what people don't realize is Doctors don't know all the time what goes on up there. They're in the back. They know the hygienists are doing a good job because, you know, they can hear them in the room next to them. So they know if the hygiene's going well or not, but the front desk oftentimes is something overlooked. So before you even go about thinking about it, and this is the real hiccup, is you have to have a a fee-for-service practice. Mm. You know, you're starting to actually see, use the reference for medical, but you're actually starting to see medical kind of go that way. Like, you know, John just gave me the name and he sent me, he told me I had to get a concierge doctor. So now I got to pay, a, you know, $2,000 fee to the doctor every year just so I can have a concierge experience, which I'm happy to pay. Uh, I'd rather have it. But if you don't have that concierge experience, then you can't expect people to pay. So that's the first step and the first challenge to it. But then for those doctors that really do have a nine or a 10 patient experience, and we oftentimes see this where everything's in place. The, the doctor runs the practice very, very well. They can't figure out where the overhead issue is, kind of like in this example in the newsletter. This was a doctor we had met with and, you know, figured it out what was going on, but they've already got the patient experience. They've got the high quality of care. They've got the name in town. If you've got all those things, what's really stopping you from doing it is a lack of knowledge on how to execute it and a lack of confidence on how to execute it. I mean, in this example, this practice was doing like $3 million. So it's not just a one doctor operation. And they were able to successfully at least get 10% of it back already. So yeah, what's really stopping people, I think, is one, if they don't have it, more often than not, they're just a little frightened to take the plunge and drop a PPO or two. Sure. Makes sense. But when you go about it, you, you know, you want to be a little methodical. So The first thing is kind of steps if you're looking at this. Everybody has to put their full fee in. 
You know, I don't care if Delta only reimburses you $600. Your production report should show your production. It's not a collection report. It's a production report. <laughs> sure. And then we want to calculate the write-offs by each insurance company. Oftentimes when we do this, we, we just find some easy picking right off the bat to say, hey, this insurance company is only reimbursing you 50%, you know. <laughs> Do we think we'll keep half the patients? Sure. <laughs> Usually it's like, yeah, I think we'll keep half of them. <laughs> it gets a little more intense, though, depending on how much, how many new patients. You have to look at the replacement ratio, sure. how far booked out your new patients are. So it's definitely something we help people with all the time. But you need to figure that one out before you go about dropping any of them. Because some people, they come in and even though they've got a ton of insurance and they're scared of it, you know, they've got 50 new patients that can't get in. And that's just. I mean, it's not even my money and it hurts my soul to hear that kind of stuff. Sure. It's like you got 50 people willing to pay the full fee that they're trying to get in because you're such a great doctor, but you're over here taking a half fee because you're in network with the insurances. Yeah, no, that <laughs> makes sense. And to your point about concierge, when I had first moved to Charlotte, I didn't know any better and just went to the first one that would take my insurance and it was great. I came to the group and I learned all about fee for service and everything and I paid a little bit more, but boy, was it worth it. Let me tell you, you tell the difference right away. So for those practices that have that feel, they're going to come back regardless of if it costs a couple hundred extra dollars along the way. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been through it too. You'll never forget that first time you look at that treatment plan. It's like $10,000 and okay, even though you get the insurance rights, you're still spending $6,000 and then you go to get a second opinion and when I got my second opinion, I didn't want to tell him what I was getting a second opinion about. So, you know, he comes out, he tells me, you know, hey, Wes, we got this, you know, small little filling right there. And I was like, I guess my face went ghost white or something. I, I don't know. He looked at me. He's like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, no, let's look at the chart. And I was like, oh, no, it's not the filling. That's the tooth that hurt. That I buy that every day of the week. Sure. <laughs> it's what you didn't recommend. And, yep. you know, I told him what got recommended. And he, you know, he goes, well, let's look at the x-ray and I'll walk you through it. And, you know, he basically said that, you know, hey, the the material or the bonding material back in the day shows up translucent mm. and that that's not really a hole in your tooth. It's that bonding material. You really don't need to do anything with those. And, you know, that's, that's not something I'd recommend, you know, dentists will never go as far to throw another one under the sure, bus. But right. I got the point. So ever since then it's, you know, you want the dentist with that quality and Absolutely. something that's really, I think driving this it is corporate dentistry has been very good to these fee-for-service practices. People go to these corporate groups and, you know, I, that's where I had gone and got recommended three crowns. And then I went back in, I had three more. And funny enough, when I went to my new dentist, the hygienist, the dentist wanted to say it, but the hygienist goes, can I ask where you went to the dentist before this? <laughs> and I said it and she goes, yeah, I, I think I figured that one out. Sure. <laughs> she goes, yeah, it's Guys your age don't usually have that much dental work sitting in their mouth. And, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, thanks for Exactly. <laughs> no, for me, suddenly I, I went from my family dentist to going in and saying oh, I had a high-grade gum disease and three cavities. So I knew something wasn't quite adding up for sure. But for those that, hey, they've gone through the steps, they've done it, do you have any success stories on the other side? Because sometimes, like, that fear is really what's holding back. Yeah, absolutely. In this article here, we've actually got the numbers behind an actual client we worked with. And, you know, he was able to get over $600,000 back within a year. He's not done yet. That's just kind of the initial results there that he's got 600000 back within a year. That's incredible. And, you know, obviously he's got a, it's a two doctor practice. He has an associate in there. But, you know, too, it was funny. He came to us and, you know, he's looking and he wanted to, 
tell the associate half the practice, sit there and go, well, there's not enough money to for both of you. So we got to solve that one. And sure. that for him was not only are we getting him more profitable, but now we got enough money to where this very valued associate can now become a partner and both partners can be happy, which really when you're in partnerships, everything comes down to the money. I always chuckle. You see bad partnership agreements written, but there's enough money. So they never come to light. Yeah. You see really good partnership agreements written, but they can't get along. It's usually because there ain't enough money. <laughs> sure. It comes down um, to that. But yeah, especially the other part that people don't realize is the, how this impacts the value of their mm. practice. Just writing off that money immediately hits the overhead. And depending on who you sell to, it can be as much as like $6 in every dollar. So, you know, we've had some practices that came in here and you know, they were going to sell to corporate, but we went through the insurances first. And, you know, a lot of times they can get an extra million, $2 million just by going through this process and trying to figure out, hey, what do we need to take? What don't we need to take? And I always tell people when they're going in to sell a practice, you got to be very conscious. Some people say, well, the new doctor will figure that out. And I always tell the new doctors, my, yeah, that's the practice you want to buy because it's going to the discount. <laughs> 100%. If you can go in there and you can take care of this insurance problem for them, you know, you can buy a practice for pennies on the dollar. And I've seen a lot of young doctors who are sharp do it. They'll go in. The practice has a ton of patients. They'll go in there. They'll buy it. They'll bring in this nice fee-for-service model. Everyone will appreciate it. And then they'll communicate with the patients on exactly how to get out of network and yeah. why they're doing it. And that's Probably a pretty important part, too, is how you communicate this. We've seen a ton of success stories as well on the communication part, where if you're delivering that model, all the doctors are nervous going into it, but they go in. It's important, you know, if you're nervous about it, that or if it's a lot of patients, the doctor has the conversation with the patient, explains to them why. But we hear feedback from a lot of doctors after going through this process with us, getting bill, and then they go talk to the patients. They say, yeah, you know, it's funny. When I told the patients that, you know, they were only reimbursing me 60% of the fee and, you know, that we weren't going to over treat people and we can't yeah. keep up with our quality. You know, a lot of them will come back and say, wow, the patients hated the insurance company, not me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think one of the last things, too, is that there's the definite financial point. That's so easy to point to and show that difference. The other part, too, is some time. We often will ask clients, hey, what is your capacity looking like? How freed up are you? And some of them are saying, hey, I'm 110, 120. Our next question is usually how much are we leaning on PPOs? And that's 80, 90, almost 100%. There tends to be a high correlation with the the time spent too. No, absolutely. Uh, I got a real funny one. I don't recommend doing this, but we had this couple that showed up at our Aruba seminar last year. And, you know, we started asking about the PPOs, anyone dropped them. And there was a couple that they just dropped everything overnight. And, their practice collections did not increase. I don't recommend doing it this way. But they said, yeah, we collect about the same. I think they lost a very good chunk of their patient base. But that was to their point. So they said, no, we're making the same money. We're just half as busy. <laughs> right. So, you know, to them, that can be another benefit. But it's definitely something everybody needs to be aware of and be on the lookout for because the insurance companies is not getting any better. It's always getting worse. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're not paying attention to this stuff, looking at it every day, then, you know, you're losing thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. every month. And, you know, we want to make sure that everybody's getting paid for what they do. And, you know, some dentists kind of feel guilty about it, but you kind of have to get over the guilt and understand that 
they're really paying for the expertise, the integrity, the trustworthiness. There's an experience there that they're getting that they're not going to get somewhere that's in network with all these insurance companies. And you need to be confident in that and proud of that, that, hey, you know, you're right. We, we don't accept an in-network dental insurance, but hey, we do accept it. We do filed on your behalf. You will still get benefits paid, but we can't afford to only treat what's necessary and take the discount. We have to pick one and, you know, we're not willing to sacrifice our values here. That makes makes total sense. And thanks for sharing that. And from one, what can be a, a scary topic to maybe a little bit more of a, a controversial topic. We talked a little bit about ERC and we're curious. So we saw another article yet again. It seems like a common article we're writing about. What do you what do you have to share about the, the oh, ERC yeah. credit? Here it is on the last page. I wrote this one. <laughs> it seems like I thought the ERC credit, it was funny. It surfaced back up and I noticed dentists were coming in and they were telling me they got $300,000 and I'm sitting there going, how in the world do you get $300,000? Because... You know, I I read this law. I read every page of this law. I read all the regulations and can't for the life of me figure out how you got $300,000 on it. This is another one. We might need a little history lesson on the ERC originally was supposed to be a credit for 50% of the wages you paid while shut down or if your business was down 50%. Very straightforward on how to calculate that. So you can still get an ERC claim. And that was in last month's article. So if you didn't get an ERC claim and you think you might deserve one, then you definitely want to go back and claim it. You know, don't use this as a reason to freak out if you got a legitimate claim. But what ended up happening was, you know, they say that if you shut down for, if you were shut down by a governmental order and you take the ERC during the shutdown, or it, there's this little caveat in there and it's, if another, if a supplier, a vendor, if somebody else was shut down due to governmental order and they caused you disruptions, then you can actually take this credit. Now, most dental supplies were available. Prices were different, but there's you know a whole bunch of rules that actually go into this just because one supplier was shut down. If you get it from another supplier, then you know you can't take this credit for it. So most people really, you know, this whole idea that anything caused an impact or just because we had an impact from COVID, we take it. That That's kind of where it all stemmed from. Sure. But it's really the promoters that came up with this. So the promoters have been notorious. They did the R&D tax credit, the syndicated conservation easements, the, you know, captive insurance. These promoters are really just tax fraud experts. <laughs> sure. So the promoters got a hold of this and they they looked at the same rules we did and they got a completely different interpretation. And they kept telling Dennis, no, your CPA just doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> or, you know, we have attorneys that, you know, they read this better than anybody does. And, you know, it reads pretty straightforward. There's really three ways to take it. You know, you were either had a quarter in 2020 versus 2019 that you were down 50% or more in collections or 2021, the first three quarters, Mm -hmm. any one of them was down 20% or more versus the same quarter in 2019. Second way is if you were shut down to a governmental order, this would be a written order. So you need a copy of it. If you have a copy of this written order and you were shut down and you kept your staff on, you had wages, you're eligible to take this credit while you were shut down by governmental order. Now, usually that's not a whole ton of money, but hey, if it's there, you definitely want to take it. The third way is if you're a startup or business, 
So the third way, you definitely want to talk to your account, but I'm going to concentrate on these first two here because these are the ones really up for suspicion. So if you were shut down due to governmental order, you're only allowed to take it during the period you were shut down. But if you were down 50% or more or 20% in a quarter in the first three quarters, you can potentially take up to $26,000 of tax credits. Now, here becomes the problem. 2021 was a record year for dentistry. Most people didn't have down quarters. These promoters are claiming just because COVID had an impact, you can take it. And that's just not true. Mm. The IRS has been issuing warnings for quite a while about these promoters. I mean, there were four ads during the Super Bowl for employee retention tax credits. So, I mean, this is just wide scale fraud. And the reason they're doing it is they're taking 10 to 30 percent of the credit. So it's important to know also, if you did do this, what actually needs to happen. So I'm going to use the 30% example. Let's say we took 100000 and we didn't deserve the credit. So the tax fraud shop takes 30% of it. They want their thirty grand right off the top. You actually have to go back and amend your tax returns, and you can't deduct the wages that the credit should be applied against. So you're going to go back, amend your returns. Another 30 to 40% of that credit is going to be gone. Depending on what the company charged you, you're going to be left with somewhere between like 30 and 50% of this tax credit. And you might have committed fraud to do it. So now the IRS has taken the position that the promoters were the ones that promoted the fraud. It's important if you are in this position, the first thing is consult with your CPA before you do anything. Even if, you know, your CPA doesn't know you took it or they told you not to take it, go to them, tuck your tail between your legs and say, hey, been reading some stuff and I think, I think you were right. (laughs) Sure. So if you did do it though, there now is a process and it's the last article in this month's newsletter. There's a process for actually withdrawing a claim to try to avoid IRS scrutiny. If you did take a huge credit and you don't deserve it, we highly recommend doing this. Now, there's no guarantee the IRS kind of audits everyone or gets to everyone. So you might get away with it. But that being said, it's If you end up in tax court over this, it's going to be an ugly day. So in 2020, most dentists got these PPP loans. A lot of them got two PPP loans. Not only you get the PPP loan, but you got the provider relief funds, Mm. a lot of the dentists. And then 2021 was a record year. So you're going to be sitting up there and you're going to hope there's not a jury. But if there's a jury and they're sitting there and they're talking about all this free government money you got and they're showing your records and you had a profit, you you know, a boom (laughs) year in 2021. And then you're sitting here claiming you deserve this tax credit, too. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be a whole lot of sympathy coming your way. But again, don't if you truly qualified, you absolutely want to take it. It's not too late. So if you were down 50% in quarter two of 2020 and you didn't take this, contact your CPA. You need to take it. It's not going to be $26,000 per person, but it's still going to be a decent tax credit. So a lot of people that were down 50%, if for every one doctor practice, you know, the credit would be like $30,000 ballpark, give or take. And that's a good range where a lot of the doctors got it. If you really were down in 2021 as well, we want you to take as much as you can. But if not, you know, you do have options here to withdraw the claim. So we want to make sure if you should be withdrawing the claim that you do. And those Super Bowl ads are not cheap. So someone made money off this, but I'm guessing it wasn't the dentist. So. No, absolutely. And we've seen this type of fraud before. And, you know, they'll kind of come in and 
they'll tell you, oh, we'll be there. And, you know, if you get audited, no, no worries. We're, we're going to take care of it for you. And then when you get audited and you have to have somebody deal with it and you go back to them looking for your money, they're going to say, <laughs> no, no, you, you know, you didn't defend it the way we would have defended it. And that's why you lost. Exactly. And they ain't going to be anywhere in sight to get your money back. So we just recommend trying to get on the straight and narrow with this one. I, I love saving tax money and I love pushing with it you. to the edge, but you know, this one, we pushed to the edge and fell off the cliff. If we got a few hundred thousand dollars, we <laughs> right. didn't deserve. Well, they hear, heard it here first, drilling it down, had it before anyone else. We'll, we'll better, better get to it. But oh. as for our last topic of the day and, and really want to kind of take out your crystal ball, I got a big question for you, and it's in our newsletter. Are we in a recession? Yeah, th- this one is the million-dollar question, maybe the billion-dollar question if you know how to play your cards right. So, Liam, I, I'm going to answer if I think we're in one now, but... Liam, you work on the investment side. So, and actually, for those of you who don't know Liam or don't know my background, Liam used to work for Vanguard, which is one of the world's largest institutional money managers. I used to work for a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors, which Vanguard is our biggest competitor, but we were probably like the fifth or sixth largest institutional money manager. So, this is actually my background before, and Liam still works on that side here for us. But <laughs> Liam, before I answer that question, I want to get a caveat out of the way, and we'll see what your answer oh, is. Sure. And is there anything you can do, or is it a good idea if you think a recession is coming to sell out of all your money? Today's episode is brought to you by the McGill Advisor. The McGill Advisor is your resource to reaching your financial goals faster with greater confidence and less stress. Members will receive our monthly newsletter delivered to their door, containing all the latest and greatest tips as it relates to taxes, practice management, and achieving financial independence. Membership also includes access to our online portal, including archived articles, webinars with available CE credits, discounts on educational seminars, and much more. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your first year subscription. So definitely do not sell out of all your money, and especially when we talk about, hey, what we can control. When we're thinking about, hey, I need to do something and I need to sell out, really that strategy is saying, I know I'm going to be right twice. I'm going to know exactly where that bottom is, and I know exactly where that top is. And frankly, most people aren't right once. And so selling out is the last thing we want to be doing. Yeah. Whenever I take those phone calls, I always ask somebody and say, hey, I want to get out of the market. I say, that's that's fantastic. What day are we getting back in? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they got a silence on the phone. I go, all right, so we aren't really smart enough to time the market here. And so before I start talking here, I just want to get that caveat out of the way that we're not in- insinuating at all that you should time the market. And really, this is not investment advice at all, but we do want to talk about it. So back to the original question of, are we in a recession or heading for one? I think it's likely. If we ain't already in it, that we're heading quickly and this interest rate thing is going on. So Liam, I'm, I know you probably weren't a homeowner back then, but you remember the 2008 financial crisis? Sure do. Absolutely. <laughs> so in 2008, kind of a reminder, when interest rates went up, what happened was a whole bunch of people were on variable rate loans. Mm. So as those variable or as the low fixed rates expired and they, you know, the rate went up, mm-hmm. all of a sudden they had payments they couldn't afford. And the other thing was some people were on interest-only mortgages that all of a sudden the payment started. So that created a humongous just foreclosures, just disaster in the residential real estate market. Now, some of us looking for new homes, we might be excited over that. But unfortunately, I got bad news is everyone tends to be on fixed rates in the residential market. So 
the residential market is cooling down, but it's really not, in my opinion, set to collapse. And it's all opinionated, you know, like donkeys, everybody's got one. Exactly. <laughs> but these variable rates, that's a good history lesson on, yeah. okay, the rates are gone up. So who is going to be impacted? And there's two that really come to mind. It's auto dealers mm-hmm. and commercial real estate. Sure. So most people in a mortgage have a fixed interest rate. It's just, hey, I got a, if you're like me, you know, you refinance down at the peak there and you got like a two and three eighths. Some of you might be sitting on, they were doing mortgages at 1.99 <laughs> for a little bit of time, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. But, you know, you're sitting there, those don't really go up. It's okay, well, who is going to be impacted by these rates going up? And yeah, car dealers have floor plans. I mean, a lot of car dealers don't buy their cars outright with cash. They buy them from the manufacturer off a loan. (laughs) And some of those floor plan rates are starting to get up there big time. Cars aren't selling. Interest rates to buy them are high. I mean, I'm looking at the auto market going, oh boy. I mean, just a year ago, I unfortunately just had to buy a truck because mine finally finally hit the graveyard. <laughs> it's a great looking truck though. I wish y'all could see it. That yeah, but I like my old one, <laughs> but I told my wife one more thing. So I had to go buy one and you know, I've been, I knew my truck was going to die. I mean, it, it had like 180,000 miles. So we knew something was coming, but you know, I would go by the dealership and look, you know, there's no way they're charging markups. They don't have any trucks on the lot. Now I drive by the dealership and boy, there's about every truck you want on that sure parking is. lot and they're not moving. They've been there forever. The, Days on inventory are ridiculous. I have a die or a Ram now dealership right by my house. I drive by and man, there's every Ram you could think of sitting on that lot. I mean, there's like a year's supply of them and they're not selling. So, I mean, that's something where you look at the auto market could be coming to a standstill. I don't know if it really be a standstill, but people aren't buying cars. The auto union wants more money, the floor plans, the interest rates for consumers. So, I think you could see it there, but the other problem going into that is if as the dealers start to have to slash prices, all these people, when they couldn't get cars, they paid over market. Exactly. <laughs> and now they're in loans and a lot of these people, they're doing 0% down on a loan. So now they've got a car they paid ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 more for. They're underwater on the car and you know the value, they already overpaid, plus the value's getting slashed. They might find themselves upside down on a loan by... and they might just decide to default on that. So I think there's something brewing in the auto market. And then the other one I have is commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So commercial loans are not like your mortgage loans we just talked about. They're fixed for a period of time and then they either balloon or they have to get refinanced. So I think, I can't confirm this, I haven't looked, but David was telling me that the Wells Fargo building here in Charlotte just got defaulted on last week. Wow. So, I mean, that's yeah. a big one. And these commercial loans, kind of the same thing. When real estate was hot, people were paying too much for them in commercial. So, people were paying out the wazoo for them. The interest rates are coming up, and the amount of employees working in the office ain't the same as it was. I mean, it's kind of a recipe for disaster in the commercial real estate market as well. Liam, I don't know what other things have you seen in the economy that make you think we might be heading there? Yeah, and and just to really kind of put everyone's guard down, when we hear the word recession, we think automatically to 2008. We think the stock market dropped 50%, and that's every recession, just because it was so vivid in everyone's memory. Just to kind of put in very economics 101, all a recession is, is, hey, we have two quarters of the GDP declining. 
in some ways, it's healthy for the economy too. It's like, hey, if we're accumulating, if we're kind of have a thriving small business and that's continuing, I think dentistry is pretty recession-proof, we're able to buy at a discount. But ultimately, there's been some mottos that the Federal Reserve has taken that, hey, rates are going to be higher for longer. Money is not going to be as free. And when that is the case, kind of these larger businesses, these larger groups, they're not able to have this free money kind of mantra. And so things are slowing down. And so, hey, we wouldn't be surprised if we saw that headline saying, hey, in fact, we had two quarters of decline. But that's not necessarily a means to say, hey, we need to sell out of the market. In fact, hey, this is some of the the world's best companies that are going to be on sale for a period of time. If gas or anything else was on sale, everyone would be running and trying to buy as much as possible. Sometimes when we talk about the equity market, we get a little more concerned for some reason. No, absolutely. But yeah, people are definitely you know starting to struggle, and sure. I think people are feeling that. But yeah, it's it's kind of funny when we talk about recessions. There's a lot of the doom and gloom points you can point to, and I think some of them are serious. But to your point, that that doesn't mean it's going to hit you. That doesn't mean it's going to hit everywhere. Every recession is different. Exactly. And yeah, if we could predict it, then you know we'd probably be on a private island. <laughs> hey, and me and you both. So, is there anything that we we definitely don't want to sell out? We confirm that. What can we be doing? Is there anything that hey, what is within our control? Yeah, absolutely. There there are definitely some things. So one, on your dental practice, you know, just make sure you're really reaching out, giving patients that, you know, A plus experience, Mm -hmm. because if you're not giving the experience to them, then, you know, they might decide they want to go somewhere else. So as long as you're delivering that experience, making sure you're flexible with them, it should be it. If you need to and, you know, somebody's struggling, be flexible with them on the payments. You know, if they need a crown and they don't have the money, you know, make sure you treat them well and say, hey, you know, no problem. You know, can we do 99 bucks a month for your portion? And, And, you know, give them the treatment they need. But when you're in one of these, people will always remember how you treated them when they were down. And there's, you know, that loyalty is worth more than anything money can buy. So you definitely want to make sure you're treating your patients with respect and you're being kind to them and understanding of the situation that they may be in or getting in. Because the other part of it is the government money ain't really floating around anymore. So that's what was getting a lot of people to do dentistry and do elective procedures was, you know, they had the we had the Trump Biden feud where, you know, Trump gave the Trump check. So Biden had to give the Biden checks. And before you know it, everybody had money. Exactly. <laughs> like, we ain't really got all that money anymore. And the government, the next part of it, once those stopped, the government was still handing out COVID money to businesses, which is keeping everything going. But the government money's really stopped. So just be very conscious of that if you talk to people that, you know, they might not have the same amount of money they had two years ago. They might be struggling a little bit more. The other things, though, and, you know, I think every time we talk about the recession, every time we talk about most things, it's if you have a good plan in place, then you shouldn't really have too many issues. But there's three things we can look at. A lot of the people, Liam, you've seen this. How many people come in through the door and most of their portfolios in the S&P 500. I'd say 95%, at least. It's it's a lot. That That's kind of the scary part to me is a lot of people, you know, the S&P 500 got run up. They had low interest rates, buybacks, a lot of things going into that. You know, with interest rates higher, we might be looking more to just get back to our discipline before it bites us in the rear. Mm. You know, we don't want to sell out of the stock market, you know, just because we're scared might have a recession. Stocks might not go down, but we definitely don't want to be over-concentrated in a certain subset of stocks. We want to be well diversified. So 
I always like to think there's about 14,000 stocks in a well-diversified portfolio. What do you think, Liam? <laughs> I, I think that's a good idea there. And, and most people only have about seven right now. If you have the S&P 500 and you have that significant seven at the top, it's like there's not too many more that some of these, quote unquote, diversified portfolios have. No, absolutely. So the first thing is making sure you own all the stocks in the marketplace. Now, that kind of goes in two ways. So Liam, talk to me a little bit about, you know, okay, one would be if you only own the S&P 500, what else is in the US for you that you're missing out on? Yeah. So when we look at, hey, small and mid-sized companies are going to be huge, specifically small and mid-value companies. Value is really just a term that means, hey, if we look at our company financials, this is trading really at a discount. So we want potentially companies that are trading at a, a good deal, a discount, and that have more growth potential. When we look at that relationship between your stocks and your bonds, your bonds are the ballast of the portfolio, but your stocks are the growth engine. That's what's helping to outpace inflation and allow this money to compound. If this is our growth bucket, why is that money invested in something that's really already hit that ceiling? And when we talk about being well diversified, we don't want a portfolio too that, hey, everything is correlated. Everything is up. If we look at hey, how all those different asset classes did, some were up, some were down. We do want that kind of non-correlated assets. And you get that from your small, your mid, and your value companies. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that got in this S&P 500 thing too, chasing returns. And a lot mm-hmm. of financial advisors are guilty of this. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, I was in an advisor's office out in Colorado and yeah. You know, he had seen me speak and he said, yep, this is definitely what I'm going to do with my clients. But and he goes, you know, Wes, I I need you to answer something for me, though, is how do you tell, you know, clients that you want to be in this portfolio and look at this one I built and look at its 10 year performance record? I looked back at him and I think his name was Bob. I said, Bob, how long have your clients been in that portfolio? He said, well, they haven't yet. And I go, that's (laughs) the problem. Everybody knows what returned the highest the last 10 years. Nobody knows what's going to do it the next 10 years. We need to stick to our discipline here and make sure we have everything. But owning everything in the U.S. is one thing. I think what we get up somewhere in the ballpark of like 3,500 at that point. So according to my 14,000 calculation, we're still at least... 10,500 shortly. And where are those coming from? Yeah. So that's coming from overseas. That's the the international markets, both developed and emerging. And we're not ones to say, hey, we we want all of, of our eggs to be in the international basket, but we do want a healthy exposure. Too often when I look at client portfolios, the international piece is only about five or 10% if that. There's a hometown bias to the extreme. And and the problem is, is that, hey, when we look at the just breaking it down to the numbers, because, hey, who knows, the last five years, you were right to be in the US. But if you look at a period from, hey, 2000 to 2010, international trounced the US, but that recency bias of the last five tend to take over. Most economists believe that, hey, international might have more growth potential. And frankly, when we talk about, hey, just adding more non-correlated buckets, hey, when the U.S. is maybe flat or down, international almost will always outperform it. And so that's where that that other piece goes from. Don't leave here thinking, hey, we need to buy a bunch of individual stocks and international companies. But hey, finding low-cost funds that have some international exposure are going to get you to that 14000 no, absolutely. And and that really helps out just, you know, if something were to happen, it, it's kind of like 2000, 2001 with the tech wreck and everybody was, it's kind of what started the roller coaster ride. You know, the tech stocks were doing well. So everybody left their international behind. They left their small companies behind and they went into the tech companies and lost everything. And, you know, then they, you know, back in the 
gosh, I had one guy that did real estate at that point. It's just, you know, you kind of chase the next best thing. We can't be chasing the next best thing. We just got to be disciplined with it. Another thing with the smaller companies and when you really dive into the research of why a smaller company outperforms large companies over time, if you kind of think of them as a school of fish, I'm not talking about just one, but the school of fish, why does the school of small fish swim faster than the school of large fish? A lot of it actually has to do with the innovation that happens at those small companies, but then the large companies buy them. It's kind of like, I think, didn't it, what is all is Facebook purchase? Facebook purchased Instagram, yeah. right? Facebook realized they were probably going to go out of business if they didn't get Instagram. <laughs> right. So what'd they do? They go buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Snapchat maybe as yeah. well. I don't know. He owns but, half of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's um, exactly. But yeah, those are things that, you know, they just go up and they buy these smaller companies. So you mm-hmm. want to own the smaller companies, you know, before they get bought. Because usually when you go over to do a takeover and you're going to sell, you know, the selling company, they get an offer made and the board has to vote on it at the direction of the shareholders, Mm. which really diving into why we do things certain ways is like the mutual fund companies we use. You know, they make sure that they don't have any board members who have what we call a poison pill. Mm. So make sure the board members are okay with the company being swallowed up because if not, we want that board member gone because we know a lot of the return actually comes from being bought. And sorry, but we're not really here for the employees of that publicly traded company. No. We're here for your portfolio. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's a ton in there. But, you know, meet with your advisor. Make sure that, you know, this is going well. Definitely something to look at. A couple other things to look at, though. You mentioned bonds are the ballast of the portfolios. Liam, I always like to pose this. I'm going to give you one out of left field here, see if you Absolutely. know my answer. but. I have a very specific reason I want bonds in a portfolio. Do you know what it is? I'd say you're not going to dinner parties bragging about your bond returns. You're probably doing it for a, a poor sequence of returns, right? You nailed it. It's a poor sequence of returns. It's not a one-year bad return. If we were just worried about one year of bad stocks, we'd just own two years of cash. <laughs> right? Who cares? Why would we even own the bonds? We'll just have our spending money there. But you hit the nail on the head. It's a bad sequence of returns. So, Liam, when you go to look at bonds, you know whether you first – looking for what type of bonds you think people should own. Yeah. And and really, our thinking hasn't shifted. But I think overall, we are seeing a shift that everyone's coming to their senses that, hey, we're not necessarily needing a long-term high-yield, quote-unquote, junk bonds to get us through. That used to be when yields are really low. We thought, hey, we have to really stretch and get high yields. Now everyone's coming back to what we were been talking about for years now to say, hey, if we just get really high quality and and if we talk about quality, bonds all have a, a grading to them similar to grade school. And so we want, hey, A-rated bonds that ultimately have short to intermediate term timelines. Every bond underneath the bond funds will have a year. They might be a one year, a five year, up to 30 years. And as you can imagine, it's like, hey, those shorter term bonds, they have more predictability. They don't have the same fluctuations. And if we're here just for that poor sequence, we're here because that's safe money. And so we do want to make sure that, hey, those intermediate bonds, their yields are now five, six percent pretty darn good for the the fixed income portion of the portfolio. We're not needing to reach for yield anymore, which is great. And two, don't come out of here saying, I'm just going to buy a bunch of bond certificates that are five years. It's much simpler than that. If we can just get, again, a a low cost bond fund that really ladders it for you, that's really going to be your winner there. No, absolutely. I think a lot of people found out and put in the news that their life jacket didn't perform as expected when we finally saw interest rates rise. And 
I think what's been going on for a long time is people have been buying income funds or things sold as bond funds. And a lot of advisors have been doing it too. And they don't understand what's under the hood. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I always like to a read the prospectus and two, I like to figure out exactly what they hold and you can gleam a lot by what's in the holdings report. Now, fund managers will always change around their portfolios right before they have to make that public <laughs> disclosure. But what's in there can shed a lot of light on maybe what you don't know. So a lot of people, though, what they found out was they thought they had this you know, bond fund and it was doing great. And they had one of two things going on in it. Either one, they had, they call it high yield now, but we used to call it junk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they <laughs> had a bunch of junk bonds that might default. And you don't really want to hold junk bonds as interest rates are going up because as those, you know, these are small companies that call them junk, but they don't have a lot of high credit quality. Cash flow can be an issue for these companies. So if they have to go back and refinance and there's not enough available money out there for everybody to refinance, you know, these companies could default. And a lot of people go in there and they'll point to a historical default rate on junk bonds without diving a couple layers into more detail to figure out there really weren't a lot of the junk bonds 25 30 years ago so you're looking at a very small sample set that's not big enough to tell you what could happen there the junk bond market is humongous today versus where it was when these data sets were created Hmm. so that's something to just be aware of you know we really want to hold now you said it exactly right we're we're worried about a bad sequence of returns. So if you retire and the stock market goes down, we have to spend the money in the high quality bonds. That's what they're there for. So you don't want them in junk. Right. <laughs> you know, you want them in something you know you can sell and get money for, spend, and it buys you that time for the stock portion of your portfolio to recover. That way you don't have to sit on the sideline fully scared. Makes sense. But the other thing people found the hard way was some of these income funds own things that aren't bonds. They own swaps. They own futures contracts. They made bets. And a lot of the people, you know, we've been trying to warn about this, but five, six years ago when interest rates were two, three percent, that's what people were doing to get yield. They, you know, hey, look, we can get six percent out of this. And, you know, it's kind of sitting there from my point of view. I'm going, well, if you're getting six percent there, what type of risk you're taking. There's no risk-free return. You're taking 6% worth of risk. And a lot of times people found that these assets were actually riskier than stocks. So, you know, what's under the hood of this bond fund or really your life jacket is going to matter. So it's a really good time to just reassess that as well. So I think the three of things you really want to reassess are, you know, the diversification on the stocks. Do you have exposure to all areas of the market, to all countries? You want to look at your asset allocation. Do I have enough bonds? You know, have I been riding the stock market up? Have I been in 90% stocks, even though I'm 65 years old? I've got a couple people that pulled that off. Great, but it's time to reallocate it before something bad happens. (laughs) You know, you've won the game. Let's reallocate it. And then lastly, too, just making sure that, hey, when when we do say we own bonds, we actually own the thing that's going to be the ballast of the portfolio. It's kind of like owning an inflatable lifeboat, but you don't have the pump to go with it. (laughs) It's it's only going to do you so much good. (laughs) Right. But yeah, you know, I think it's definitely... To wrap up that one, I think it's definitely possible we see a recession. And some of you out there love commercial real estate. So I've been telling you, I've been trying to help clients with like 1031 exchanges and the market's just upside down, doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. So I, I don't know when this stuff will happen. I don't know that it will. So don't take this as the gospel. But if I was a betting man, I kind of pointed out my areas of the market I'm betting are are not looking so hot right now. And <laughs> 
The other one we didn't mention, but we talked about last time, which might instigate this was, you know, private equity struggling to raise money too. And they're loaning at 15, 16%. So certainly acquiring dental practices gone down. But I think you're going to see acquiring practices or businesses in general from private equity is probably going to go down. So, you know, it's nothing. We can't predict it. You know, we've been, people have been saying there's going to be a recession since 09, after the 08 recession, right after it. And it hasn't happened. So, I, you know, we don't recommend sitting there and trying to predict this, but we absolutely, you know, hey, use this as an opportunity. It's kind of like, you know, you're out on the water, you're out on the boat and, you know, maybe you haven't checked the life jackets in a while and, you know, here comes the patrol <laughs> and they want to check them for you. <laughs> maybe let's check them before the patrol gets to us and make sure we don't get in any trouble, make sure our life jackets are working right. It's a great idea. Absolutely agree. Well, a couple other things in here, though, you know, make sure you check out the article about fee raises. You know, January 1st every year, we want to raise fees. So we're looking at about 5% this year. We got a couple other items in there to help you with, you know, management, make sure you're delegating everything you should. We know that the last few years have certainly put a strain on most business owners. So, you know, bad news, a recession, you know, could be in the wind, but good news. Hopefully you get some employees available at that point, because I know it's been really hard to find employees. It hasn't been fun to run businesses. So we want to be there to help you make the best decisions possible and hopefully keep it as stress-free as possible. But I know, I think the last time everyone felt relatively stress-free was probably 2019. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's been, it's been a few years. No, well, Liam, thanks again for joining us here on the Drilling It Down podcast. For those of you watching on the website, just let you know, we are available on most podcast platforms via audio at this point so i know you can go on to spotify and i assume it was one of you listening but to whoever left us our first review we really appreciate it if you did enjoy it leave us a review but otherwise though thank you all for tuning in and we will be back with you in just about a month here this wraps up another episode of drilling it down we look forward to seeing you for the next episode In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, mcgilladvisory.com. And if you aren't a current subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your initial subscription.